Hello. <laughs> Welcome to episode 18 of the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast. Welcome. We have been on hiatus for a little while, but are hopefully back. We've been dealing with some technical issues that we hope we have solved uh, in order to try to record remotely when we're in two different places, which is for some reason more complicated than it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand it. <laughs> but we are we're persisting in the face of really, really stupid technical difficulties. Yeah. So we're doing our best. Uh and hopefully this will work out and we'll be able to do this a little bit more often. Um and what's been going on? You just celebrated your what anniversary of your first show? It was the fiftieth anniversary of my first show on November fifth. 1967, I did right. my first ever radio show on WFMU at what was then Uppsala College in East Orange, which we've talked about a whole lot on the first few of these podcasts. That's, yes. That's where I got started. And it was also the beginning of Freeform Radio at that radio station which has gone on to become uh, one of the handful of great internationally known and admired and supported freeform uh, listener-supported stations because of the Internet yeah. and uh, you know the web and all that. Um, they have listeners all over the world. And, uh, and I'm the one who... Did the first show that mixed. yes you started it I did I did it's weird to yeah. say that you know it's it sounds like I'm I'm uh, tooting my own horn but what the hell I mean I guess I am we're just we're yeah that's fine pointing out just facts uh, yeah it's a historical fact right so you went back on the day of and and visited and talked about the history yeah well I I thought it was important enough that we should observe it somehow. So I got in touch with my friend Glenn Jones, who does a show on Sundays. And, and I looked and the date um, coincided with a Sunday. So originally I was on the air from Saturday night at midnight into Sunday morning. The fifth was the Sunday. So since he does a show at noon on Sunday afternoons, I thought, well, there's a good place for me to be. So I called him up and he said, sure, come on by. I hadn't done radio, uh, actual real live radio since since I retired, like two and a half years ago. So it was my, yeah. first, my first time back. I've done a couple of interviews that were pre-recorded, but not actually at a radio station. So it was um, it was fun. We got a lot of nice response to it, and uh, and here we are. Nice. You know what it is, well, Kate. It's yeah. I, it's very strange to observe the fiftieth anniversary of something that you yourself right. were involved in. It's not like a fiftieth birthday. I mean, I was fifty almost twenty years ago. And uh and and you know, I'll have a significant birthday this year as well. It's totally different. It's like when it's something that actually affected the immediate world around you. Right. 
And the fact that that FMU is still to this day, 50 years later, you know, doing what I initially lit the flame for, um, it becomes something above and beyond just your own private little world of your birthday. You right, know, because which, it's a, a half a century. It's yeah, a big number yeah. to be having been doing something. Mm-hmm. To say you were doing this for half a, a half a century ago. Yeah, it's a nice chunk of history. <laughs> really, it really is, and kind of. Well, hard. it's funny because I was listening when you were on, and I was listening. You know, I tuned in right before you guys started talking, and I was listening to the music that they were playing. And I was thinking, oh, my God, this is so FMU. What is this? And then, of course, it turned out that it was music you had chosen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. So I really appreciated that. It's like, oh, yeah, this is so FMU, but it's so FMU because Dad started it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't this where we came in? It was that, right. opening, that opening piece that I played. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think in, uh, in terms of this podcast which is number 18, did you say? Number Yeah. Eight, number 18. Over a couple of years. We're pretty much um, ready to go to NEW for the first time. Right. Right? So in our oral history segments of this podcast, I think we left you off uh, unemployed after leaving PLJ. After was leaving, that right? Yeah, after leaving PLJ. Um, which I left. Sorry, there's some sirens. Sorry, there's some sirens coming. I'm in my Brooklyn apartment. Mm-hmm. And there's here they come passing wow. by. Please excuse them. Sir- yeah, it's not as close as it sounds, but sirens from Brooklyn. Sirens from Brooklyn, very mm-hmm. special. Please continue. <laughs> okay. Um, I left PLJ just to to you know kind of put the the stopper back in that bottle uh, when they inaugurated their first playlist, which was a very minor thing. It was basically, as I remember it now, there were maybe three or four cuts an hour that you had to play from a certain list. And it was a pretty broad list. It was, um, you know, as far as playlists go, it was relatively benign. Right. But, but that wasn't what I did. It, right. And it wasn't And what... they were just trying to rein you guys in because you were the crazy hippies who were kind of all over the place. Yeah. Is that what was happening? Yeah, basically. They were, they were trying to do that. They were also trying to improve their ratings, which was why they changed the call letters from ABC FM to PLJ, because they thought they were losing ratings to their AM station, WABC AM, um, right. you know, people were just saying, oh, I listen to ABC, and they meant the FM station, but the AM station, because that's what it was called, ABC, w- they were getting the uh, um, the, the check for, for uh, the ratings. So, right, because um, ratings used to work where you literally would fill out a little form or something. Yeah, and you'd fill out a f- write down what you were listening to. Right, you fill out a form, and in some cases, they even called you up and interviewed you. Right, um, with regard to your your listening habits. So, um, yeah, it was easy for people to make mistakes, or for mistakes sure. to just sort of be inherent in the system. Uh, 
And so that's what happened at, at PLJ. And I forget now whether, I guess I just stopped going to work. I don't even know if I actually, <laughs> I don't, you know. That I, sounds like you. Yeah, I don't think I ever actually had the I quit speech to the general manager or something, you know. Uh, but I did. I, I quit. Somebody told me that there was a problem with collecting unemployment, that should, if you quit, you couldn't collect unemployment. So, oh. so I think that was the deal in New York State at the time. I don't know if it still is. You had to be fired, yeah. f you know, basically for no reason. Um, yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah, so I think I, ev fired. I eventually did convince somebody, not the general manager, but like the next guy up, uh, the next guy below him, to um, to back me up that they had fired me by by putting this thing that was not part of my agreement with them to do, they were essentially letting me go. And uh, I, I, I went on unemployment for a while, you know, in, in New York. I would travel in once a week on the bus to, uh, you know, to go stand in line and say, no, I, I uh, have not received any offers. <laughs> right. You know, you have to go. You have to go through that whole thing with the unemployment office. You know, they want to make yeah. sure you're out there trying to get work. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure this is when I went out to a radio station on Long Island called WLIR for the first time. There was a guy out there who was the program director who was a fan of my. PLJ work. He may have even known me when I was on FMU. And uh, he was very excited at the prospect of my working out there. So he invited me to try doing the morning show. Well, LIR was located out by the Nassau Coliseum, you know, in some little Long Island town that was very far away from uh, Montclair, where we were living right. at, the, at the time. We had just moved to Montclair. And uh, I tried. I tried for maybe a month, I guess, drive out there, you know, like an hour and a half each way. So it was like three hours in the car. And I know lots of people do that as a commute to go to work every day. But that was not for me. And it was a really lousy commute, too. I mean, from, you know, it was like, it was like uh, just all super highways and real crowded New York roads. And once you got out, right. once you got out past the BQE, it became just this maze of strange highways that didn't mean anything to me because I wasn't brought up there. Right. You know, so I tried it for a while. I mean, there, the reputation at LIR back in that period, this was now 72, uh, they were a uh, part of that whole world of progressive rock. The guy was going to let me do what I wanted to do. But there was a different attitude with the audience. For some reason, that part of Long Island had a very big southern rock contingent. Mm -hmm. By southern rock, I mean, you know, bands like... Uh, I can't even remember their names. Allman now. Brothers. Well, the Allman Brothers, yeah, but the Allman Brothers almost really um, were 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 more than that. 
you know, the Allman Brothers were a legitimate band full of terrific. It was like good old boy. Yeah, good old boy it was Southern a lot of Rock. good old boy, cowboy kind of stuff. And, and uh, that just wasn't me. You know, I just, right. I was more from like a folk uh, New York sophisticated uh, jazz beatnik tradition. You know, I wasn't really into the Marshall Tucker Band and and the Outlaws and um, Thirty Two Special or whatever. I mean, then you know there were bands with names of guns and things, and it just yeah. it just yeah. wasn't me. So clearly, I wasn't going to fit in. And I remember playing. Uh, uh, you know what? It wasn't the morning show. It was the evening show. It was the 6 to 10 show. That's what it was. Because I, I was playing like long sides of John Coltrane and that that era of uh, of jazz. And this poor program director would call up and he would get mom on the phone. And he'd say, <laughs> he'd say, he just played like uh, the entire first side of Love Supreme last night. You know, 32 minutes. I mean, <laughs> what do I do? How do I stop him from doing that? And mom said, no, you're not going <laughs> to stop oh him from doing that. And clearly it was not what the audience out there was used to. And it's not what the audience out there wanted. See, I was always told that like, Suburban New Jersey and suburban Long Island, once you got past Brooklyn and Queens, they were sort of similar. You know, there was kind of a similar, they, they developed along the same period of time in the post-war mm -hmm. era. You know, uh, there, there were these developments that all began on Long Island, Levittown and places like that. And, uh, there was always this notion that if you were from the suburbs of either Long Island or New Jersey, you were going to have a similar outlook towards life. And that turned out to not be true, at least yeah. at least not from my experience. Um, you know, I just didn't I didn't relate to that to that whole thing. And so my sojourn the first time at L.I.R., was um, relatively short. Yeah, it was definitely the evening show. It was the 6 to 10 show. Because the second time I went back there, which was in the early 80s after I left NEW, they had me doing a morning show on the weekends. And that's why I get it mixed up. But that was a whole different thing because mm -hmm. then they were, they were now, it was the 80s, and they had a slogan called Dare to be Different. And they were playing. Okay. They were playing like all the MTV bands because MTV was getting started then. So it was right. all like bands like Flock of Seagulls and Duran Duran and bands that I had been playing on NEW, but suddenly it was twenty four hours a day of just these bands without anything right. else. And I could not dare to be different. But that's a story for. Several. This is uh, basically the place you would try out when you were unemployed. Yeah, and no one right. Else wanted you, <laughs> and then it wouldn't work when nobody else wanted me. Yeah, <laughs> some fan yeah. who was now in charge of programming at LIR, uh, yeah. you know, would call me up and say, "Why don't you come out here?" And I, uh, yeah, no, I'd try it. What the heck? 
So, so you to... think you only lasted like a month yeah, this first time if, out there? If even that, if even that. Mm-hmm. And so that was sometime in late 72 or mid 72. And at that point, I was done with radio. I, I wasn't going to go to any other station. I, uh, I started working in, in uh, your mom's business. Uh, she wasn't working in it yet then. She was still teaching. But, uh, but I joined the, the, the retail firm. I worked in the back in the shipping and receiving room, which I liked a lot. Because <laughs> I was basically by myself there, and I, yeah. and and uh, you know I sort of enjoyed that, but I knew that there was not going to be a career for me there, but I didn't know what what I was going to yeah, do. Yeah, you just didn't know. Yeah. What, did you have any ideas? Were you brainstorming other ideas? I, no, no, I wasn't. <laughs> 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 I wasn't. I mean, mm-hmm. I I was lucky that that your your mother worked i mean certainly when she was working as a teacher in east orange she wasn't earning a a huge amount of money but um we were able to get by in those days in the early 70s you know on a teacher's salary um and i just i i never i just never could see past any of that i always figured something Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I, I always figured something would come along. You know? Well, that's the thing. It's It didn't occur to you also to try to go to other radio stations and see if something could work out. You just, it was more comfortable for you to wait and sort of see what happened. Yeah. I mean, there was a, mm-hmm. there was a guy at WBCN, which was a great radio station in Boston. Uh, who was a fan of mine from New York. He was originally from the New York area. His name is Norm Weiner. He's still, as far as I know, he's in Chicago now, and he's like one of the big VP management guys with um, the CBS radio stations. But Norm said, why don't you come to Boston, man? It's going to be, it's, it will be great. You know, come up here, be on BCN. So I drove up to Boston. This was in that same period, 70, I guess it was early 73. It was whenever Paul Simon's first solo album came out. Mm-hmm. So if we looked that up, we could figure out when this was, because I remember the album had just come out. And um, I was going to do like, an overnight, I was going to do maybe two overnights up there, just filling in. And I drove up there, and as I got to Boston, I immediately got lost. Because Boston is not like a grid town the way New York is. It's just, it's all like, you know, crazy old Revolutionary War streets up there. So I got lost. And, and no GPS. No GPS, no cell phones. <laughs> and right. and the streets were just full of people because Boston has a million colleges. Right. So the the youth market, the college age youth market in Boston was huge. And as I drove around trying to find my way and find a a, a motel to spend the night, uh I couldn't, I got more and more paranoid and more and more 
anxiety-filled until I finally stopped at a payphone and I called Norm and I said, you know, Norm, I can't do it. And he goes, what do you mean you can't do it? And I he said, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in Boston. And I looked out the, 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 the phone booth, you know, glass, and I said, I'm at the intersection of whatever and Beacon Street, or, you know. He said, mm-hmm. well, you're here. Come on, just come by the station and we'll do it. I said, no, I'm, I can't talk to these people. What people? <laughs> I said, these people on this street here, I have nothing in common with them. I don't know how to pronounce their the names of their weird bridges because I'm thinking about like the Kosciusko the Kosciusko Bridge back in, right. back in New York, you know, which I used to be able to pronounce easier than I just pronounced it, Kosciusko. Yeah, the Kosciusko Bridge. Yeah, Kosciusko. And uh, you can't think about the way it's spelled when you say it. Yeah, you yeah. You have to right. divorce saying it from how it's spelled. <laughs> so. You know, I, I was a big proponent of local radio means local, means that the people on the air know who the people in the audience are because you all come from the same streets and you all right. you all have the same basic um, environmental st- stimuli. Uh, sure. You know, and to just... To be one of those wandering guys who just travel from one market to another in radio um, was something that just never appealed to me, and it never made sense. There's a, a Harry Chapin song called W-O-L-D, and it's all about mm-hmm. this guy who just travels from one station to the next. And mm-hmm. there was a there was a cliche about that kind of DJ— but that cliche came from the real world. That's what DJs right. did. And you work your way up. You work your way up in markets from, you know, the small uh-huh. little tiny thousand watt stations. And then you'd then you'd the, your next gig would maybe be in a mid a mid city, uh, you know, slightly larger. You'd start off in Podunk, and then you'd make your way to, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, and then you go from Pittsburgh to some little town outside of Chicago, and then you'd go from that to maybe some, you know, bigger city, and eventually you'd wind up, you know, you'd go to Chicago or Philadelphia or Los Angeles or San Francisco, but eventually the goal was to be in New York. And, right. And I had already been in New York. <laughs> and, right. And so it felt like a demotion. Yeah. Yeah. There was a guy who called me up again, a big fan. I forget when this guy was. I forget whether he was in the 70s or the 80s after I left either PLJ or NEW, who had, he was working in St. Louis and he was the program director of a station in St. Louis. Must have been in the 70s because you were born and we wouldn't have thought of moving to St. Louis. I was born in 1980. You were born in 80, so this must have been in the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. And we drove out there, and I kept... mom. No, we didn't drive. We flew out, Mom and I, because if we were going to move, Mom was going to move with me, you know. She, yeah. Uh, and uh, we kept trying to get this, this guy and his wife to tell us where downtown St. Louis was. Uh-huh. He didn't, and he said, no, there isn't a downtown. I said, well, there's got to be like an old part of town. He said, you don't want to go to the old part of town. 
<laughs> but to me, from New, to, from New York, you know, I wanted to know yeah. where downtown was. I wanted to know where the village was or what, you know. Yeah, you were spoiled. I was New very. York spoiled you. Yeah, I was very spoiled. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there was no radio. There was me working in the shipping and receiving department, bonding with the UPS delivery guy at uh, Walter Bauman Jewelers. And uh, in the meantime, do you do you think that you were, do you think that you weren't ambitious, or do you think you were just used to New York and that's what you wanted? Mm. Because it takes a certain level of ambition to say, okay, I'm going to go do these gigs. It's going to lead to a better gig. I mean, also someone who needs to be employed, which you were able to take the time and not be employed. But um, did you feel like you had ambition? No. No. <laughs> I, did. I, I, I mean, it was a combination of those things, but... Yeah, I never had ambition. I never, I never like had a dream of what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, and yeah, and implemented things in my life to follow that dream. <laughs> yeah, I just right. I, I, well, it's interesting because it it really served you. I mean, it allowed you to go with the flow and see what came to you, which I don't think works for everyone but mm. it uh, it certainly served you yeah yeah it worked for so me what what came to you in this moment okay well after i left plj um the the man that i was closest to there on the air was dave herman right dave was doing the uh the, the evening show at plj he had come up from from uh uh, Philadelphia, where he was like the head hippie <laughs> in in <laughs> yeah. Philadelphia. That's he did an official position, yeah. head hippie of Philadelphia. Yeah. He did a he did a show called the Marconi Experiment, and mm-hmm. he was literally the the king of the town. Now Dave was maybe ten years older than than me and mom, but we became very friendly with him and and his wife and um, daughters. And, uh, you know, we spent some time socializing off the air. We even adopted one of uh, one of their cat's kittens, little Herman Graypaws. Mm-hmm. That was his name. Herman, yeah. Herman Graypaws came to live with us. Well, Dave ultimately got tired of PLJ because it 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 went from that relatively benign original idea of a playlist to being a very strict playlist and there was some change about to happen at WNEW. Now WNEW was really the classic um, although they didn't use the word classic yet <laughs> like you right. know, classic rock. NEW was the alternative Countercultural radio station. It was a commercial radio station. It had been in existence since '67. There was um, in in New York radio. There had been like ABC FM, uh, ABC AM, and and MCA, and a couple other top forty stations that were the big stations in the '60s. And as the '60s changed, 
and radio changed along with the music as all of that began pointing in this new direction. For a brief period of time, there was a station, WORFM, that was doing some interesting things and hiring some interesting people. That's where Scott Muni, the program director of NEW, made the transition from uh, AM, Top 40 Radio. He first went to this WORFM thing, which, uh, which didn't last very long, and then he was hired at, uh, at NEW. NEW had gone through... Well, this is jumping the story. I'll tell you about the all-female format and all right. that. I'll tell you about that in a bit. But uh, Scott, Scott was hired as the program director, and he put together a very interesting staff of people, and it was the station that ABC FM PLJ was really trying to compete with. So I never really looked at NEW... NEW to me was not, it wasn't what I wanted because it, it seemed now when I look back on it, what I saw was the professionalism of their staff compared to the wild, crazy, uh, freeform a a anarchy of the people I worked with at PLJ uh -huh. There was a big difference, and I thought that the NEW people were just a little too conservative, not politically conservative, but, you know, conservative in their outlook right. and in the way they did. And now I know that that was just because they were professionals. They were serious, right. <laughs> you know, they were serious, and they were adults, and they knew what they were doing, and and blah, blah, blah. So, but I never really entertained any fantasy about NEW at all. I think I must have listened to it a little bit, but I, you know, over the, the those couple of years, but it was always something else because it was commercial radio and my roots were in non-commercial, you know, listener supported radio. And that's what I knew. And that's what I believed in. And that's what I wanted more than anything. So there was a, a, a staff change. I think it was Somebody, the, whoever was doing the morning show at NEW was either moving to a different time slot or was leaving the station. But the morning show was available. And I think maybe it was Jonathan Schwartz. Oh, yeah. They started taking out ads in the local papers directed towards Dave Herman saying, Dave, we know you're miserable at PLJ. Come to NEW. No. Yeah, really. Yeah, ads like in the in the Voice and the Daily News and, you know. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's it's it's true. You know, come and and I think it was Jonathan was the the signature on these ads. You know, uh, I'm I'm moving to the evenings. So you come and take take over. Be the morning man on. And uh, whether or not they had already had discussions, I don't know. I mean, Dave might have been in on the whole thing of, uh, of the joke of these ads. But the point is, he did eventually leave PLJ and went to NEW as the morning person. And in the summer of 73, he probably went there in like, you know, the late winter of 73, 
in the summer of 73, I got a phone call from him saying, look, I'm going on vacation in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to suggest to Scott Muni, if you're into it, that, that you replace me on, you know, while I'm on vacation. And I'm like, oh, Dave, that's so sweet of you, but I don't think, I can't do, I can't do what you do. I can't do that morning show, because there's so much to do in the mornings on radio. You know, you got to have the traffic and the weather, and you, know, you got a lot of commercials, and it's, it's one of the important times. It's one of the drive times. People are going mm -hmm. to work. You know, that's like the main time for radio, even back in those days. People going to work, and in the afternoon, people coming home from, from work. Uh, let me think about it. I'll call you back. And I thought about it, and, I, you know, Mom and I talked about it. And finally, it was like, well, you know, Dave's happy there, and you, uh -huh. you and Dave bonded at PLJ, so... Why don't you make an appointment and go and see Scott? And mm -hmm. uh, and so I uh, I did. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't think anything was going to come of it. Uh, and I I I I now had this reputation of being uh, a sore thumb in commercial radio. Because I was one of the agitators at ABC FM slash PLJ. I was one of the people who was always getting others riled up. Uh, I remember after a couple of people got fired from PLJ, being invited by one of my heroes, Steve Post, who was a guy on WBAI at the time. There was Bob Fass, who was my number one hero slash mentor, who we've talked about before. Um, who mm -hmm. did this great freeform show at night called Radio Unnameable. And Steve had a show called The Outside that was on overnight on the weekends. And Steve invited me and he said, and bring all your other, you know, bring all the other DJs that have gotten fired and that aren't there anymore. And, <laughs> and, uh, and we went up and did like a four-hour show on a Saturday or Sunday night with Steve Post, which a couple of years ago... Um, an engineer who had worked at BAI back then sent me um, the actual copy. Of, he had burnt a CD that entire oh, show, wow. and I have that on CD somewhere. And it's 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 hard for me to listen to it, but uh, you yeah. know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think we, you and I, even talked about maybe playing some of that sometime, but we decided not to because. It was just too dated. Um, sure. But, uh, yeah, Scott Muni. So I figured, all right, I'll call him. If nothing else, it'll be um, something I can tell later on, <laughs> you know, years and from now. And what was his reputation? I was terrified of meeting Scott Muni. He was, he, uh, the other thing about Scott was that he did a lot of commercials. He was the voice of a lot of products. He was like the national voice on radio and television for a lot of products. His, right, one so of his, he was kind of iconic. Yeah, he had a voice that was just, you know, immediately recognizable. If 
you didn't necessarily know his name if you were from some other part of the country, but you knew that voice. Okay. For, for instance, he was the voice of um, uh, Rolades. How do you spell? <laughs> how do you spell relief? How do you spell relief? Rolade spells relief. In this test with Rolade's active ingredient, laboratory acid changes color to prove Rolade consumes 47 times its weight in excess stomach acid. Rolade spells relief, fast relief. You know, Rolade. <laughs> okay. he, yeah. he just had this powerful voice. So I called and I spoke to his uh, secretary and I made the appointment to go in in a couple of days to meet him. And I go in. This is when NEWFM was located in a marvelous building on, I think, 46th or 47th Street, just just east of Fifth Avenue. It was like right in the middle of, of a real good part of business New York. Okay. And uh, the, the, the guys at the AM station used to cover the St. Patrick's Day parade that went right by on Fifth Avenue um, from a little balcony uh, two or three floors up, you know, they would, uh-huh. <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, it's just like, it was very romantic, you know, romanticized era in New York radio. So I have a like two o'clock in the afternoon meeting with Scott and I get there and uh, they bring me into his little office in the, in the section of, the station that was where the secretaries and the sales guys were, not the studios okay. or anything like that. And uh, he was very nice, shook my hand, said, hello, it's good to meet you. Dave says so many things about you. Uh, I'm familiar with your work on PLJ. He said, unfortunately, uh, he had to leave right away because he, there, there had been a death in the family, like an aunt or somebody had died. And he was due in an hour at LaGuardia to get a plane to New Orleans. So we couldn't really talk. I was oh, okay. He, he said, but can you come back next, next week? Can, can we talk then? Okay, sure. So, you know, I had been anxiety-ridden for a week <laughs> prior to this. Right. So, uh... So that week somehow finally passes and I go in to meet him. And I remember sitting in the office and him telling me tales about New Orleans and about his family. And uh, my trying to assure him that I wasn't a crazy, radical, communist hippie. Because that, uh-huh. because that was the reputation people from PLJ had. You know, right. um, we were the up against the wall mother effers guys, you know, and this... which ironically were the ones who then had to institute playlists yeah. because you guys were so out of control. Right, right. Uh, so I, I remember saying to him, you know, like I, I, I know how to play Stevie Wonder because Stevie Wonder <laughs> at that point was just becoming a huge FM star you know he had been a top 40 star little stevie wonder uh, for a long time but suddenly now his records were beginning to be um considered as part of the the intellectual artistic non-top 40 musical world and and they loved playing him on new 
So I, I remember it so specifically. That was my my big pitch was that I was familiar with Stevie Wonder and I could play Stevie Wonder along with the Who and the Beatles and the Stones and and Bob Dylan. I could do all. So of once that. once Dave got you this meeting, which the meeting was still just to fill in for Dave, right? Or at this point, it was bigger than well, that. Well, it it was still just to fill in, but I. But think... at this, but you, once you got the meeting, where you then like, well, I, I guess I want this because you hadn't been sure what you wanted. But yeah. then it, it was like this opportunity is presenting itself. So I may as well go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was that was the thing. Once I met these people, once I saw the environment, I saw the radio station. I see William B. Williams in the hallway, and I think, well, hey, maybe I would like this. Maybe this would be nice. And they were, they were very nice to me. All the people there, all the the secretaries and whatever. And so I did the week, and for Dave, filling in for Dave, and I managed to get through that okay. And I didn't embarrass myself or or your pitch that I can play Stevie Wonder was enough to get. Get you that? I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. And, uh, uh, you know, Scott called me in after one of those shows, and he said, uh, you know, there's uh, there's some part-time work here. Would you be interested? We always need people to fill in, and there's always, like, an overnight period when we can use somebody once or twice a week. Are you available? And I said Yes. And I never looked back until 1982. So from 73 yeah. to 82, I was there in a number of different, um, with a number of different air shifts. And for a while, I was even the music director in like 70, late 75, 76. Dennis stopped being music director and became um, full-time on the air. And uh, they offered me the music director's job. And I, as a music director, it was really, it was pretty funny. I, the music directors always spend a lot of time like going out to lunch with the record company promo men and being wined and dined by the record company promo men. And the music director at NEW didn't have any kind of power like with the, with the air staff. It was more like a, a, a functionary job. It was making sure that the, that the albums were there. Right. You know, in the library and that the new stuff was getting in and that we were getting enough copies so the DJs who wanted to take copies home could take copies home and listen. But the music director wasn't making a playlist. He wasn't directing the music. He was right. just he was just the the functionary. And some guys, Dennis was was one of the perfect people for this gig. Some guys really got into the schmooze aspect of it. I didn't. I looked at it as a functionary gig. Make sure that the music is there. Make sure that there's a lot of different kinds of things there that hadn't been there before. And I would go in at like 5 o'clock in the morning and leave by 2 in the afternoon. 
Mm-hmm. And never, never would go out to lunch with anybody. I think the only guy who, <laughs> <laughs> the only guy I let take me out to lunch was Steve Leeds. Uh-huh. And Steve was a like a college kid who had just come to New York and gotten his first job at uh, at Atlantic Records, and he was a big fan of mine going back to FMU days. And I let Steve take me out to lunch one day. But otherwise, <laughs> and these guys would all grumble about me and, you know, what's the matter with Vin? He doesn't want to, you know. And I went to Scott and to the general manager at the time. Uh, and I said, look, I'm I'm going to do the job, but I don't want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time, like, you know, eating with these guys. I mean, it's not necessary. And, right. they, and they said, do the job. Do it how you yeah. want it. And that, and that was always Scott's attitude towards everything. Was he didn't he really trusted his people? Yeah, he didn't care how you did the job as long as you got the job done. Yeah, and that was uh, that was uh, an extraordinary, um, enlightened way of of handling that position as as program director, program manager, whatever you you know whatever you want to call him. And those years that you're talking about when you were there were really important years for the station. The station became culturally a really important yeah. um, New York. Uh, it was a, a, an icon and it was a yeah. voice, you know. Right. It was um, in the battle, the ratings battle with PLJ, which always existed from that point, you know, from the early 70s on. NEW always, we always held our own in the ratings. We weren't as commercial as them, but Scott had the record company contacts. So Scott Scott was always able to maneuver things in such a way that when the Rolling Stones were going to come to town to start their new North American tour, we were the ones who had the tickets to give away. Right. You know, when, because, because a lot of the, like the English guys, the English bands, they all related to Scott from the 60s when they first came over, when they were, you know, like top 40 bands. This is how Scott became good friends with John Lennon because they met right. when the Beatles first came to New York. So Scott was good friends with the Who, with, you know, Pete Townsend and and, uh, the Rolling Stones, Jagger and Richards, and then the American artists like Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. I mean, everybody knew and was respectful of and bowed to the godfather, Scott Muni, you know. So it was a benefit to him that he was older than these young kids. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a benefit to him because certainly the 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 old line guys who were running the record companies at that point, while there were young people coming up, um, especially in the promotion area, the main guys, the the big money guys, were more Scott's age and How older. How old do you think he was at that point? Uh, well, if I was 25, he was... 35 maybe i think he was about, <laughs> yeah. yeah i think he so was, was about real old yeah i think he was about 10 years older than me he could have been uh-huh. he could have been even 36 or 37 i mean i don't know we we couldn't look him up and see when he was born yeah but, uh, 
Well, this is Vin jumping in after Kate and I recorded this conversation to report that I'm terrible with ages <laughs> because Scott Scott Muni was 17 years older than I. He was born on May 10th, 1930. I was born uh, in 1947. So at this point, if I was 25, Scott was, what, 42? So he was, he was older than, uh, um, than I think. All right, let's get back to this conversation. I think we're about to talk about Allison Steele. Uh, and, of course, Allison Steele was there as well and she was an yeah old, talk about Allison. An older well talk about Allison <laughs> Allison before any WFM became what it became when it was first switching from the simulcast of the AM station the first format that they came up with was an all female DJ no Format, yeah, and they were they they were playing basically that same kind of uh, AM, NEW AM type music, you know, Sinatra and and Elvis. But that was Sterling. their gimmick. They were the, like, our gimmick is going to be it's all female DJs. All female DJs. Meanwhile, and, there weren't female DJs on like any other. No, station. there were there were the only females on the radio were like the older women who were on the talk channel, W-O-R. Um, okay. You know, who, who tended to be um, either like they did domestic type, you know, shows about cooking and housekeeping and things right. like that. Right, but they weren't doing music. They weren't shows. doing music, no. There were no female d DJs. And Allison was probably the first one in New York along with these other women. Now... Who did they hire? They hired women who were wannabe actresses, women who were okay. models. They were all very good looking. Women who had a certain sultry quality to them, because that's right. It was probably it was about the voice. Yeah, it was about the voice. There. Yeah, Allison had been married to a guy named Ted Steele, who was a band leader. And at, at a certain point, um, she w was like a part of a TV show, local TV show that he had. Uh, my, my recollection of Allison's early days are that she was sort of on the periphery of a kind of a show business world. She, okay. kn she knew a lot of Hollywood people. She knew a lot of, you know, actors and actresses and... She was model good-looking. I mean, she was a very, very attractive woman. And she, when she got on the radio, felt like she had come home. She felt like this is where she belonged. She really took to it. And when they made the switchover from that all-female format... How long did that last? Oh, I don't know, maybe a year I mean, that's or year and a, half. a remarkable historical footnote. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they offered her 
the opportunity to stay on, but only if she could convince them that she knew enough about the music. Okay. So she went into this like crash course, she once told me, of just getting her younger friends to turn her on to all this music. And she learned about it and was able to incorporate it into her sultry on-air nightbird persona that she had. That's what she was called, the nightbird. Yeah, and I don't know if that was from the all-female period or whether that was something she developed once she became uh, the late-night person on the new NEWFM. You right. know, she became very, um, come fly with me, the night bird, Allison. Right. Star, you know? she, so it was like, we hired you because you had a great voice and a pretty face, yeah. as if a pretty face mattered on radio. And <laughs> right. right. Now, if you want to stay on with these legitimate DJs, you got to prove to us that you can do this. Yeah. And she did. She did. And she became uh, uh, a big star. Yeah. You know, because a, a good many of the listeners to that kind of music were male. Right. They were <laughs> adolescent boys who were just beginning to feel their um, their uh, their manly desires. <laughs> sure. You know, and they would listen to Allison and she played to that. Now, she didn't play to it. She 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 was not obvious with it. She always came right. on like she was your big sister or your your you know your cool aunt. She was always your friend. She was never she never presented herself as a as a sex goddess. Right. But she knew that people some part of the audience listened to her in that way. Right. You know. I mean, uh, when I did the 50th anniversary show on FMU uh, a day or so ago, uh, X-Ray said, oh, man, I used to listen to Allison Steele. I mean, she was, oh, I used to get, you know, blah, 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 blah. guys would hear her voice and would get excited. Sure. You know, I mean, that's what, that, that's what she did. She read poetry on the air, and she was always very... Um, uh, evocative of uh, having a, a kind of a kinship with her listeners. And the thing I always say about Allison from the entire time that I knew her, both there and then later on in the 80s working at, uh, at K-Rock, she conducted two shows whenever she was on the air. The, the one show was the show she did that you heard on the radio. You know, the music and the talk yep. and the poetry and the come fly with me. And the other show was off mic on the telephone with her listeners. She constantly answered the phone and developed friendships over yeah. the telephone with her listeners that lasted for 10 and 15 and 20 years. They would call her up when they, you know, graduated high school and when they were getting ready to go in the army or when they were getting married and having a baby and, you know, 
Allison was always a part of it because she she'd play like long sides of albums on the air and she'd basically have like 15, 20 minutes sometimes when she wouldn't have to go on mic. She was on the phone. Developing... Did she ever talk to people on the air? Or it was mostly no, off the it air. It was off the air. None yeah. of us none of us except for special occasions talked to people on the air. Right, because it was about the music. It was about it wasn't the music, about yeah. It wasn't a kind of interaction. It, right, right. This is Vin dropping in, kind of like that, Vin dropping in. Once again, after we uh, recorded the show, Kate and I, because I think it's necessary to hear Allison. And if you go onto YouTube, you'll find uh, a very few... Uh, recordings that the listeners made of her that are uh, av- available. Some of them are v- so poorly recorded that it doesn't really do justice to uh, uh, to her voice. But this is one that I found that gives you an idea of how she would begin the show. She always did a reading of some kind at the beginning of the show and it would always end with her saying come fly with me and uh this i think gives you a a a nice uh accurate presentation of of who and what i'm talking about Trouble never happened and sorrow never came. The only thing you'd know about your neighbor is his name. If all your days were bright and fair and certain was your place, you'd only know a fellow by the features of his face. Tis not in sunshine friends are made, but when our scars are gray, the splendid souls that men possess are never on display. We cannot tell what lies behind the hasty nod or smile, nor what of worth will come of it. In just a little while, we only know that when we face the cares that life must send, we realize the passerby has changed into a friend. So come, friend, fly with me. Allison Steele, the Nightbird, at WNEWFM in stereo. It's funny to hear her say in stereo because at that point in time, stereo was one of the things that people were excited about FM radio, that it was in stereo and that you could present the recordings in that fashion because Top 40 AM radio was, of course, always monaural. So uh, doing the call letters, identifying the station was uh, a part of the the pitch was to add that phrase in stereo. All right, we go back to uh, uh, the Kate and Vin portion of the podcast. Allison had to work through the boys' club atmosphere of rock and roll, rock and roll radio, um, engineering in radio because because at that point everybody was um doing their own engineering 
when right. I worked at when I worked at PLJ, we had engineers because it was a very strict union house. The engineers were were members of uh, NABET, National Association of Broadcasting something or other technicians, and mm-hmm. those guys had very strict rules about keeping the talent away from the engineering apparatus. You weren't allowed to right. like you you couldn't put the record on the turntable and put the stylus on the record and start the music. You couldn't do that. You had to have an engineer do that. It's but, so crazy. But gradually as those union contracts ran out, um that was no longer the case and by the time I got to NEW, we were all doing what they call combo. We were both the the talent and the on-air engineers. We were combining uh, both jobs. There were still a bunch of engineers at NEW, wonderful guys who took care of the 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 technical things. You know, took care of the equipment, took care of the transmitter, and and uh, and that kind of thing. But we all engineered our own shows. And Allison took a lot of crap from people because she was a girl. Yeah. And she, what did girls know about engineering? And she was infamous for making mistakes, for having the records, you know, run on into the end groove and there being periods of uh, dead air and uh, playing the record at the wrong speed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I once joked about it years later when she and I were were both at K-Rock, um, you know, long after you were f- finally with us on the on, on the planet. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was the late 80s, I guess. Because at K-Rock, she came on after you? After me, yeah, yeah. I was on Sunday nights on K-Rock, and she she was doing the overnights. She had, right. she was ill at that point. She had cancer. Um, and she was basically hired almost as a way of like taking care, you know, taking care of her so she could yeah. have the union, uh, health benefits and stuff like that. And she came in and she did the overnight and I was joking about it one night towards the end of my show. And I didn't know that she was out in the hallway listening. This was when Kara Kara Manning was my producer, so Kara can mm-hmm. testify to this. And she came storming into the studio. Now, Allison and I were, we really liked each other a lot. And, yeah. and there was never any friction between us or anything like that. She, she literally tore a new orifice into me on the, <laughs> on the air. She said, you don't know what it was like for me. God damn it, Vinny, of all people. I hate to think that you think this about me. And it was all on mic. And it went on for like 40 minutes. Oh, my God. I said, oh, Allison, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean What have you said? I was just, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. And when when You're that like, would oh, happen, I, we would I go. Did an oh, Allison? it's an Allison. I just did an Allison. Yeah, oh my I, God. it was an Allison Steele moment. I'm sorry. I tell you. you know, and and I wasn't the only one who made those jokes. A lot of people right, would make those jokes. Right, but you got caught. I got caught by Allison, and she reamed my ass. Oh. She <laughs> gave it to me, and I I've I had a tape of it once, but I I I don't I have no idea now where it is. 
I wish I still had it. And so um, she said she, she, gave she told me, you then about how hard yeah, it had been for she her. She gave me the whole history of all the crap she took from people. And even when she was at NEW, um, after the women's era, you know, the, the all-female era, um, that the other, the other DJs were all men. And they right. gave her a hard time. And, yeah. and uh, she was treated in that, in that way by some of the rock musicians who would come in. I mean, she had good relationships with a lot of the heavy-duty rock stars. I mean, she was right up there with, with um, Scott in terms of developing friendships and relationships with people. But there were some guys who came in who thought, you know, she was the chick. And they could treat her right. like the chick. And she was no chick. You yeah. know, she was a tough broad. And um, I learned it. <laughs> I learned it the hard <laughs> I learned it the hard way. I and, mean, well, you know, we hugged and kissed after it was yeah. over. But she had just finally had it. And she was so disappointed in me that I was the one making the joke. Oh. Yeah. But that's Allie. She was, um, she was a beauty. And when we would... When we would all go out on stage at at Madison Square Garden or at uh, any of the various clubs or at the bottom line or at the Capitol Theater or the Beacon or any of these places where a bunch of us would be introduced by Scott Muni. Yeah. You know, because he, he loved his staff and he wanted his staff to be treated with warmth and admiration by the by the audiences the biggest applause was always for Allison Steele oh. she was the one who got the reception cuz she was she was different she was magic she was special and right. she, and she taught me early on and i've said this before um she pulled me aside one day when i first went to work there cuz what happened was to get back to it after I did the mm -hmm. the fill-in show for Dave, they made me a kind of a permanent fill-in man, and they gave me like an overnight, like a s Saturday night into Sunday morning, two to six overnight show, on a regular basis, and then that blossomed into another overnight show, and then they gave me Sunday morning, and then they gave me Sunday night. So basically, by the time it got to be 75, 76. I was working Friday and Saturday in the afternoons, filling in basically in the time slot that Pete Fornatel had, 10 to 2. Friday and Saturday afternoons. Then I would come in on Sunday morning from 8 to 12. I was on the air. I would go home and come back at midnight on Sunday night. <laughs> I would be on the air from midnight until 6, and then on Monday, I would come in for the overnight, two to six. So I was working five full-time shows Wow! in a very kind of crazy four-day gonzo performance yeah. schedule. <laughs> and at a certain point somewhere in there, I became the music director as well. So early on in that period, I remember having this dream, this nightmare about Allison, that I walked into the room, into the studio, and she had her back to me, and uh, 
you know, she looked like Allison. You know, she's wearing a pair of jeans and uh, had a nice blouse on, and this long sort of reddish blonde hair. And she turned around to look at me, and her face was a skull. You know, she was like a, like a, you know, it was this horror dream that I had. Mm -hmm. And the next day when I went to work, I walked in the studio, and sure enough, she had her back to me. And I was like, oh, my God, is this going to happen? And she turned around, and of course, she looked, you know, as beautiful as she ever looked. And I told her the story. And we got to talking about telling stories and about being a personality on the air. And she taught me that, she said, you, you want to be loved or you want to be hated you you don't want to be ignored because that was her that that was what she felt about that that was her career people either loved her or they were like oh christ Allison Steele, god that hippie with the patchouli oil and this and that and you know uh or or the boys club that that always criticized her and and you know the adoring fans who gave her the most applause of all the DJs all the time every single time, yeah. You know she was a huge star, but she knew that that, that you had to run the risk of the negativity if you were going to be successful. You didn't want mm-hmm. for people not to care about you. Mm-hmm. You didn't want them to be indifferent. Because if they were if they were indifferent, then that just meant that they you know that you were indifferent. You were not doing anything to to um, set yourself apart from the run of the mill. You had to. Did that make sense to you? Then? Oh yeah, it did. It made a lot of sense to me, and um, I I um, took that in. I absorbed it, and it became like an underlying thing for me whenever I'd face criticism I would always remind myself that I got an equal amount if not much more uh, adulation than I ever got criticism and that that was just the risk that you ran if you were gonna be if you if you were gonna talk a lot on a music channel, or if you were gonna play music that wasn't as familiar to the average listener as, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin or or whoever, if you were gonna play folky music or downtown, you know, when the Ramones and all those people came out, I was one of the the big champions of that kind of music. If you were gonna do that then people were going to admire you for do, for doing it, but there were also going to be people who were going to go, oh, you know, fuck that. I don't want to listen to that. That's, you know. Right. That's, he's, oh, that awful guy? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, I used to get, and this was true even in the 80s, when I thought the world had changed, but it hadn't. I used to get people... Sorry, I got sirens. Okay. <laughs> all my Brooklyn sirens. Let him, let Go ahead. I used to get people who would call me up, not a lot, but who would call me up and complain about when I would play black artists, up to and including the aforementioned Stevie Wonder. What? They would say, take that N-word music off the air. 
And I would, and I would go on Mike, and I would, I would say, hey, you know, I just got a phone call from some jerk who's listening, who said the following to me, you know, because I was playing. It wasn't. It, it would include Stevie Wonder, but it was like all these other people who were, you know, doing interesting things in the R and B world, and you know, Kurt, right. Curtis Mayfield, and and uh, you know deep cuts from people i can't think of names right now but sure. but but, yeah. but there was always that that element of the rock and roll audience that was very um unaccepting of anything like a but good st- old boy kind of vibe yeah i mean it's the same kind of bigotry that exists now in in our time you know it's the same thing it's like that that right. That threatened white, you know, we're about to become the minority and we're angry and scared, so we're going to lash out. Right. That thing even was in in evidence at the radio stations like NEW and, and, and K-Rock. And because I was one of the people who was playing that kind of music and experimenting with this other music, I was one of the people who would get that. You know, right. there were guys who were like, you know, the Southern rock bands, like the Allman Brothers, man. You know, now I I admire the Allman Brothers, but, you know, there was this ethos that went along with a lot of the Southern rock bands that was very much a white, you know, put Confederate flags on the back of the pickup truck kind of thing. If you lived in, yeah. in it's sort suburban of one New step, Jersey. One yeah. step to get to that. Yeah. it's It, right. it was very shocking. Yeah. Mhm. Well, can we um can we stop here? Yeah, let's leave and... it there for now. I like that we got a lot of Allison in there. Okay. There's definitely more NEW stories to tell. There's lots of stories and so lots of we... lots of interesting people whose paths yeah. crossed mine there. So, yeah, we could put a uh, we could put a pause here at the end of this Kate and Vince Skelsa podcast and pick it up again. And it seems next time. like we're going to be able to pick this up again sooner than we have been. I hope so. With the <laughs> with this new uh, this new technique that we've developed here of uh, utilizing uh, whatever this is, Google. <laughs> go, what is it? Google Chat or something? Google Hangouts. Google. Right now we're on Google Hangouts. Google for Hangouts. For a while we run FaceTime. Yeah. This is the one the phone that's... doesn't quite work. It's all yeah. much more complicated than it should be somehow. Yeah. But this sounds the pretty... best is if I if I come to you, but I can't always yeah. come to no, you. No, of course so. not. And that's uh, that. You know, I've always appreciated the fact that you were willing to come out here to do that. But you know, you got your your life, and it's a drag to drive out to New Jersey. I know. Well, we figured if we can do it this way, we can maybe start to do them a little more often. Yeah. Yeah, I I would like to, because you know I'm gonna be seventy soon. Yeah, you yeah, gonna start forgetting it all. I can I could uh, drop dead tomorrow, you know, and I uh, would I would have t- t- I would have only gotten through to like 1975 <laughs> or four. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can never we can never get to the end of this because no. then you'll feel like you're finished. Yeah. Uh, okay, so thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody. This has been episode 18 of really? the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast. Yeah, 18. 18? I mean, it's taken us four years or something no, crazy. No, no. It's, it's only been like two years. Two, two years. Two and a half, yeah. maybe. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's, that's not bad. That's not so bad. I mean, uh, I think we did most of them that first year, but... It's a labor of love. That's right. You know. And uh, we'll be back soon. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Okay. Thank you. Bye.